Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. All right, welcome back. All right, we're in a new location. Can't talk about it. It's like the Bat Cave. We're in like our office. So I think we should maybe talk about this before we oh, start. Yeah, we. Because that's kind of an interesting little it's, deal. It's super cool. So, American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM, who we are both members of for. Last I checked, I am. For many years, our memberships are fees are due at the end of the year. I keep getting an email. Anyway, they have their annual week of charitable giving. Treat addiction saves lives. So that's kind of their their thing. And so the fund supports the ASAM's dedication to improving and increasing access to quality of addiction treatment, education of medical professionals and to the public, supporting research and prevention, and promoting the appropriate role of physicians in the care of patients with addiction. So wow, that was pretty long. cool. Yes, it's cool. And there's a, when you go to that page, there's a little orange button that says donate. Donate. No. And then there's one right below it that says donate to Kurt and Heather. Yeah, though, there's not there's actually. Not actually. So, yeah, you can literally just go Google ASAM, A-S-A-M, Treat Addiction, Save Lives, or just go to the American Society of Addiction Medicine's webpage and find it on there. Do it. Yes. All it right. only helps us take care of our patients and all those things. All right. Well, today we're number Part two. two. Part two, number two. Number two. What is that, Austin Powers something or other? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I'm not. So today is a little bit about determining an intent uh, with overdose and talking a little bit about suicidality and assessing it. Assessing it. So yeah, last week we just kind of gave the overview and the background of opioids, depression, and suicidality. So we're just going to take it one step further this time. Yeah, I've been down the rabbit hole on this, and I'm, I'm actually still doing more more papers on suicidality. Is this like trying to tell us something? <laughs> yeah, it's not a sign. And we're going to have him fill out a PHQ-9 after this. Okay, right after. y'all. <laughs> so in, the intentionality is really difficult to determine. And I think that if you look at some of the nation, kind of the national uh, statistics, you know, 5 to 17% of poisoning deaths remain unclassified. Well, and that's, you know, we have asked this a long time. And whenever we have presenters that that talk about this and the data and the statistic-y stuff. Statistic-y, is that a word? No. Okay. haven't eaten on my cheesecake yet, so I haven't, you know, processed that. But but anyway, we always ask, like, how do you know? Was this in, an overdose, like, by accidental overdose? Like, I took too much or it had fentanyl yeah. in it more than I thought? Or was this an intentional um, overdose? Yeah, and the problem, of course, is that often there's not been signs. And... Um, and in fact, I read some other stuff that said, you know, that the reality is that 85% of the time there was no warning, right? That people commit suicide and there was no warning whatsoever. So estimates are about a third of the undetermined ones are actually suicide. Hmm. So I think that that's uh, something that we always need to kind of think about. Um, and it's really about what we can do. Right. But we, we, like you and I, and all the people listening, all four of them, all the, <laughs> all the people um, who work in this world, I should say. Yeah. And so it's important to understand, I think, really, when we talk about opioid prescribing, and that's what we've been talking about is, you know, 
opioids and suicide is really, are there risks of prescribing opioids as far as suicide, right? Right. And, you know, one of the, the risks, of course, has to do with, you know, moods. And, you know, we talked about that last week with depression and, and the increased likelihood of, you know, what came first? Did depression bring on the need for more and more opioids or did the more and more opioids really contribute to the mental health changes? And it does look like a lot of mental health changes are related to to the opioid prescribing the opioids that they're taking. And so if you're giving opioids that are creating a person who's more depressed, you're kind of pushing them towards that suicidal Yeah, thought. and I think, too, we need to always be cognizant of the things that may also uh, help cause kind of an accidental overdose. Uh, sometimes it's cognition, it's uh, forgetting that they took their pills, it's mixing them with alcohol, all those things we've talked about. The metabolic changes. The metabolic changes. Why so, legacy patients have yeah. to be monitored still. But on the flip side, one of the problems, and you hear people talk about this all the time, is that people that have you know, pain that's not managed well, they also have an increased risk of suicide. So it's it's and, this double-edged sword. Well, and this was a really big, and still is, you know, when the whole CDC guidelines came out and the monitoring prescribing is, you know, chronic pain patients, that was a big thing with that. And it, it's really trying to work with patients, of course. Cutting patients off and, you know, torturing patients is never a good thing. You want to make sure you're still treating the safer means, yeah. not and, just... And, and I think that there's people that have, you know, really said, oh, we shouldn't be tapering people because it increases suicide. Uh, but the reality is people commit suicide on it, and they also have accidental overdose. So it, you can look at it a, a lots of different ways. And I think... But that, I think... You think. That this is a conversation you need to have with your patient. Correct. That... So they know. Shared decision making. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember as we have these conversations or we even think putting patients on these opioids is that really the evidence for benefit of opioids is pretty limited. Right. Um, and so... And who may benefit is also limited. Yeah. So... We don't know. I mean, what <laughs> of these patients? And, and you and I have seen patients that have been on opioids for 20 years until, and then they start having problems. Uh, and so we don't know. Some people have issues right away. Some it takes a while. Who's really benefiting? Uh, these are all gray zones. Well, so. I actually saw a patient this morning who was your patient and mm -hmm. has been on pain meds since her teenage years due to horrible accidents. And then it was, it has gone on for 40, no. Was it longer? Yeah. More than 40 years. And yeah, and it's, it's not understanding those changes and in the brain and why and why and and is she but she's still having pain it's yeah. that thing we always said if your pain is still a 10 out of 10 and you're on all these opioids is it really helping yeah what's the what's the benefit so again so if you look at acute pain yeah clear benefit of opioids uh chronic pain hmm, not so much um, and we know that it modestly kind of lowers the pain threshold too so again there's there's just not good data about clear benefit I hope somebody out there is counting the times you say again. Again. Again, again. Okay, so chronic pain um, is a clear contributor. So we don't have clear data for chronic treatment or chronic pain management, you know, with opioids. We don't have that clear, like, yep, this opioid management is going to definitely help your pain. But yet we have the data that says chronic opioids definitely... Um, 
well, people with chronic, chronic pain, pain definitely increases the suicide yeah. risk. Um, I wondered where you were yeah, going. Yeah, I was there. saying that a little backwards, but yeah. yeah, chronic pain, clear contributor, but opioids don't have the perfect, you know, data. So. Yeah, you know, and should I say again? No. Uh, <laughs> one of the things to you think about. You wanted to. <laughs> no, I did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting because the CDC guidelines, of course, talk about, you know, not using opioids first, multiple dis multidisciplinary, well, that's hard to say fast, uh, team, you know, doing all these things without opioids is really the, is really the key. Um, so and, a and provider really, shouldn't be on an island as a paternalistic no, provider. No. Hmm. And so there's tons of pharmacologic approaches, and we're not going to bore people with those because they're boring. Um, well, but you know, they're not boring to, to people like Dr. Isaac. Yes, but we're not talking about opioids right now or i mean other stuff we're talking about opioids and it's suicide. not boring we're just just not applicable okay it's boring to me okay so if you prescribe opioids you actually need to talk to your patient oh we talk about this a lot right that you really should talk to people when you see them as a patient right i think that it, uh, we should tell medical students that that you should talk to patients yeah. and not just read the emr because yeah. sometimes when you just read the medical record you get one perspective of or you get one, you kind of like have that preconceived notion of this patient. And then you walk in, you're like, this yeah. is the coolest person I've ever met. I'm yeah. thinking of my one patient at the last clinic who's being seen by my husband today. And I'm kind of sad. Uh, but on face value, it was afraid. But you go in and it's 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 a sweet patient. So anyway, but I talk think, to them. Yeah. And I think that uh, I'm just going to say one thing about talking to people. Can I? Sure. Um you talked about the EMR, and, and I'll tell you, you can't have your face in that screen when you're having conversations like you need to have with opioids. You need to see what they what they look like, what their body language is. You're not just typing the whole time. I, matter of fact, I don't open the computer even when I go in the room. I don't bring mine in. It's too much. Hassle. Too much. But anyway, so it's that whole thing, if you're prescribing opioids, counseling on depression. Yeah, that it may worsen their depression, and yep. if they already have depression or maybe it's just recently well controlled they need to be aware of that yep counseling them on the risk of suicide which i don't think i did when i was still doing family medicine years ago um, well, i don't say these make you commit suicide like i wouldn't say that i would just say you know you know the depression opioids in general can you know kind of change moods and and do increase yeah. patients suicidal thoughts although together we didn't have enough opioid patients to probably remember if we did that or have a big enough number of yeah we didn't the n equaled not enough nope and remember just discussing accidental overdose and really assessing whether this patient is at risk for that and and the last thing is the big thing you know make sure they have a, a prescription for naloxone yeah and somebody in their family knows how to use it i'm just gonna say like make sure that you know the patient will say oh, i don't need that i don't need that and just say well you know you never know if maybe you know you accidentally take one because you forgot or maybe the neighbor kid you you can say it's always good to have it in your home especially in this day and age but you know you're not gonna be able to give naloxone to yourself so it's making sure somebody else is aware yeah. of how to use it yeah and so if we look at what happens down the line with a lot of the patients who end up on Opioids, of course, many of them do develop OUD. So, and what do OUD, we do? I don't, you know, and I, I wouldn't give this patient or a patient a severe OUD in most cases, but chronic opioid patients, if they start 
um, overusing them. They they start running out early, which would mean overusing. They <laughs> they have some tolerance, so you're going up and up. They have you know some withdrawal. You know that is a moderate yep. opioid use disorder. Yep. And so you know, obviously at that point we're talking about bup and we're talking about methadone and and really why? Because you know at some point you're going to need to do something if that occurs when you're treating a patient with opioids and. And it, uh, it clearly promotes abstinence, among many other things. This is where I had a difficulty this morning, because this was a patient you've seen like one time, and it's just she needed to be seen. And I'm in clinic today. And not understanding that she, she didn't realize she had this opioid use disorder, moderate, mm. just, no, I've been on these meds forever because I have this chronic pain, and, it, you know, and it made sense, but then explaining the brain changes, explaining mm. the dependence, explaining the physiological changes, and, you know, not necessarily saying you're an addict, because I would, first of all, never say that, but then explaining, you know, not being on it, you know, your brain's going to kind of be in that craving state. It doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. the brain sees your prescribed opioid, your prescribed Percocet, the same way it sees heroin, the same way it sees fentanyl. And, you know, we want you to not suffer either. Yeah. And it's tough because I think a lot of patients and I, we had this conversation, I think in the car the other day where, you know, we get two kinds of patients here with opioids. You get the people on fentanyl and heroin, although there's not much heroin. And then you get patients who have been on, been prescribed them and they're much they don't want to be here typically. Um, they don't perceive what's going on as an issue. And they're often a little more difficult to, even when you explain that, and I know I explained that to her as well um, for an hour, and, and, and they, don't, they don't see themselves as the same, but it's not their fault. You know, they're given these opioids and things happen that they can't control. So what she told me today is the reason she stopped her pain meds is she was watching... <laughs> I think she was watching Dope Sick or some type of a thing on Netflix and was watching. And she actually said to me, she goes, did you know there was like a pharmaceutical company who was like telling doctors? And and she was like explaining. And I said, yes. And I wrote down the name of it for her so she could go look at it again. But she was watching this show and she looked at her partner and said, I think this is what happened to me. And recognized that like here she's been on these meds forever and she wanted to be done because she's like, oh my gosh, and stopped them, and then here we are. And yeah, that was... Yeah, and of course, you know, also when once you switch to bupamethadone, of course, there's less overdose death. There's less all-cause mortality. There's overall people function better. Right. And I, although maybe you've seen patients like this, I have not patients who are on chronic opioids that we end up transitioning onto some type of MLUD. Methadone is like, I've never seen that, you know, unless, mm. you know what I mean? Like the patients who typically need methadone are typically doing the illicits, typically buying it off the streets, typically needing that structure more than a patient who's getting her monthly prescription and needing yeah. higher doses every once in a while and maybe overusing a couple here and there. Yeah. So we should probably talk a little bit about uh, what happens when patients develop an OUD and they don't get transitioned. And I literally have had three of these in two weeks. Um, and so I've been in this whole deal for a bit here. Uh, but they have eight times the risk of overdose death. Uh, and this has actually been verified by numerous studies if they don't get put on bupormethadone. 
even if they were taking just prescribed opioids? Or is this anybody with an opioid use disorder who's doing abstinence-based? Um, well, if the, I would think it would be anybody who does not receive MOUD. Okay. Um, so, so remember, that's really the key. The key is save lives. Right, and if they're not on it, or they're on it, and then they stop, of course, our favorite 86% chance of relapse. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think going back to this patient who transitions from, you know, chronic prescribed and not her in general, but just in general, but, um, you know, that's got to be a hard pill to swallow, so to say. Like, if you're on these prescribed meds that you got yeah. from your doctor and, you know, your doctor, at least for a long time, was doing the right thing, you know, by giving you these because that's what they were told to do. And now the next thing you know, you're in an addiction clinic getting tore, yeah. you know, you're getting put on some type of addiction medication. I I probably would, that would be very difficult to understand and handle. Even, yeah. you know, like the self-stigma or you have this bias ingrained in you about what an addict looks like and now Correct. here you are, even though yeah. it was never that an was intentional tough. That thing. was tough for her in particular. So... I think we should talk just a moment about patients who are on opioids and, and whether we should be assessing them for suicide risk and how we should be looking at that mm. in the long run. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the pain score, how's your pain today on a scale of 1 to 10 for <laughs> yeah. chronic opioid prescribing is like worthless and now we're trying to throw suicide on top of that? Yeah. Good luck. And one of the things that's really been you know, a big thing is, of course, questionnaires. There's a million questionnaires. You almost do 10 of them when you come in to see a doctor now. It's like, oh, fill out this PHQ-9, fill out this GAD-7. Now let's fill out one on suicide. But the questionnaires actually have very poor predictive value, and they frequently have false positives uh, and false negatives. So, so what do you do? So, you know, I think like you have on this list is if you're prescribing chronic opioids, I mean, at the minimum, there are certain things you should at least – be aware of and ask, you know, and it's not always like there's not a bullet point. There's not a checklist. This mm -hmm. is things that you as a prescriber, once again, talking to the patient oh, no. should kind of consider and factor in. Mm. And, you know, uh, looking at uh, mental illness, you know, how severe a mental illness, you know, bipolar probably related more to some of the issues uh, with overuse or suicide. Um, but, you know, other substance use, I, I just... Picked up another lady who was on chronic opioids who'd had been through treatment for alcohol and methamphetamine. And following that was put on chronic pain meds. And so, you know, you need to, before you start, you need to know about their previous substance use. Well, in um, history of suicide attempt. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a very high risk in or, there. Or in their family. Right. So I think uh, we talked a little bit about that last time about uh, that book that I had read where there was two generations of of suicide. And uh, so, yeah, family history is really important. So, <laughs> yeah. Lost your spot. So patients with terminal medical conditions, um, patients with access to firearms, and then recent trauma, recent losses. And I would say not even just recent, but yeah. we all know if your ACE score is seven or higher, your chance of suicide attempt is 1,600 times greater than a person who's got a non-existent A score. So that seems pretty big. It's <laughs> go back to the ACEs mm. thing, but it's, it's a thing, you know, so you kind of have to factor in a lot of factors. Um, Can you say that into that factor in a lot of factors? I, I think that's redundant anyway. Okay. So strategies to be safe. 
Um, I think we've we've all talked about this that especially in patients where there might be concerns early on, very short prescriptions. You know, avoid them stockpiling. I I don't know about you, but I think probably this, the med that gets stockpiled the most probably benzos. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, opioids. I mean, a lot of times patients have extra and they save them, and you don't want them to have a a big bunch of them. And some people have suggested that's even like having a gun in the house if you've got an extra thirty of them, right? Yeah. Coping strategies, so different different things to help when their you know mental illness, you know may may be worsening their their depressive thoughts. But I would even just say part of the coping strategies is is continue to work up other p- possibilities for pain management. You know, do you need a pain psychologist to kind of help you work through some of that? It's not just mental health treatment, but it's also if we're on chronic opioids for chronic pain or some type of a pain source, we also should continue working on finding alternatives that are not as detrimental. Yeah, and obviously, you know, when you have these conversations with people who are maybe have suicidal thoughts but don't have a plan or don't have anything, one of the first questions you ask is, do you have access to guns? And I think that whenever people are struggling, that's a, that's a question you should be talking about. And, um, and I think, too, you know, what else can we do? I, I think case manager, we just had this discussion yesterday in our clinic about do we need a nurse manager to kind of help? Or um, a social worker or, a or social just worker. a case manager. Yeah. To help with some of the economic challenges these patients have, job issues, all these things that, that stress people when they're, uh, you know, potentially having depression issues, which opioids can exacerbate. So that's all I got. <laughs> yeah. Yes, once again, a super happy note. Yeah. Um, so with that, um, you know, remember that this podcast is produced by Casey Devine. I should say the Casey Devine because he the. had to grow up with you. Um, executive mm. producer um, through Ars Longa Media Network is Dr. Patrick Beeman, who is taking his boards in a couple of weeks. So good luck there. Good luck. And so if you want to get involved with any of this type of educational, especially addiction-focused media stuff, it's arslonga.media. Nice. And there you go. So we will be back next week, I think, with part three, the final part of this series. Yeah. Otherwise, Casey can throw a little music in here. There you go. And you can find Battle Legs music on Spotify as well. All right. All right, everybody. Have a good week. I've been a wild rover for many the year, and I spent all my money on Have any day Well it's no day